When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Here we are again on a very special edition of the Michael Deacon program. We have Dr. Michael Shermer, who is joining us right now at this very moment. Let's patch him in. Michael, are you alive? I'm here. Yeah. I'm just waiting for you to come on. Nice. I'm glad you are here. Really do appreciate your time. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. So how are you? It's been a, it's been some time since we last talked. Oh, things are good. I'm still skeptical of a lot of things <laughs> and not others. I just attended a, uh, a big lecture by the Shakespeare skeptics. Do you know about these people? I actually don't. Please do tell. Oh, oh yeah. No, it's a, um, well, it's the authorship question. The S, what is it? It's, uh, Shakespeare authorship question. S-A-Q is their handle. And, uh, their thing is that there's very little paper trail to prove that someone named William Shakespeare wrote those plays. So, from there, you go down the rabbit hole of who you think actually wrote them, and there's, you know, like 50 different possible candidates. The leading one is this guy named um, the Earl uh, Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford. So they're called the Oxfordians in contrast with the Strat- Stratfordians, since Shakespeare was from Stratford on Avon. And um, anyway, it's it's a, I mean, it's the kind of debate when you tell people about it, they go, huh? Oh, <laughs> of course. But, you know, to these people, boy, it's, you know, it's like, it's fighting words. Boy, they, they, they can't wait to get into it and they can regale you for hours with why they're skeptical. Definitely hold that thought since we are going to go back to exactly what you're talking about here later on in the conversation. The fact that some people get, I guess you could say, quote unquote, triggered at certain things. Triggered. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. That's true. Oh, yes. Um, you know, and, and the more committed you are, behaviorally and cognitively that is how much of your life is invested in your particular belief the harder it is to give it up so um you know things like i've changed my mind on a number of things but i didn't really i wasn't really that invested in it like gun control yes or no this or that you know i don't care i don't own a gun doesn't matter to me uh or or, uh you know something like that Climate change, you know, I'm not a climate scientist. If it turned out the whole thing was wrong, it wouldn't matter to me. It wouldn't kill you. It, it, it doesn't hurt me, yeah. Right. But, you know, I, I understand politicians, you know, they can't just switch parties or people that are preachers that are committed to a particular religion and have a flock, you know, they, they can't. It's hard to give that up when they have doubts. So I, I'm sympathetic to them. Yeah, some people certainly are married to their thoughts and opinions wholeheartedly. 
And Michael, the last time we talked, we went into your career. And this time I wanted to explore other topics of interest. And for those who don't know, uh, Dr. Michael Shermer here has written many thought-provoking books, many I recommend to all of you out there. Uh, I recommended your books quite a few times, actually. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no problem. Oh, yes. And I have to tell you right away here, Michael, as soon as I even announced that you would be on here, I was hit with several emails, even people on Twitter. Many uh, seem to really have it out for you to some degree. Imagine that, Twitter, being upset about something. Right. A shocker, right? <laughs> it's a shocker, yes. Uh, well, it depends on what, uh, you know, which which people, which group I've offended, you know, who knows. Who, uh, I have been pretty hard on the on the far left and progressives, the social justice warriors, as they're called, <laughs> mainly because I think they've corrupted liberalism. You know, I'm a liberal in that sense, a classical liberal, libertarian liberal uh, values like free speech and separation of church and state and reproductive rights for women and, you know, these sorts of things, you know, follow the science where it leads, like on climate change, for example, I, I, I think global warming is real and human caused. Right down the line, most liberals that I know go, yep, Shermer, you're a liberal. You know, but if you push back just a little bit, like, you know, I think the far left has gone too far, you know, uh, oh, you're a right wing Nazi. No, no, I'm not. Or on Twitter, they complain, I don't criticize the far right uh, or like Christian conservatives and, and, and groups like that, which I have done in the past, like in the 90, 80s and 90s and, and early 2000s, you know, I just hammered the creationists, for example, pretty much daily and the and the religious right and, and all the shenanigans they were up to. You know, but the thing is, we expect that from them. You know, it, it's no surprise when, you know, a Christian group doubts evolution or a, a far right, alt right group uh, starts talking about white supremacy. You know, I, I mean, I don't really need to point out how ridiculous that is, although I do occasionally. It's, it's when people on the left who, you know, start talking about censoring speech because speech is hateful and hateful speech is a form of violence and violence cannot be tolerated. Therefore, we cannot tolerate somebody else's opinions. Then I go, wait a minute. Now, th this is the side that's supposed to be in favor of tolerance and openness and free speech. And now they've become censorious. How did that happen? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. No, I, I was just going to say it is funny how that seems to be problematic, especially with certain individuals who lean towards one side. If they see you to sort of share the same ideologies as they do and uh, the same political I guess you could say influence or interest anytime you even show a little bit of difference or individualism, that's when their opinion on you changes completely. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, I've been thinking about this the last couple of weeks of this fusion fission process of groups forming and fusing to grow larger and more politically powerful, but then they destroy themselves from within. They fission into ever smaller groups as they fight and bicker over, uh, you know, minutia and tiny details. You know, Marxist groups did this, communist socialist groups did this, feminist groups did this, the atheists did this in the early 2000s. You know, who was the true atheist? Are you militant enough? Are you atheist plus? So you're in favor of social justice as well as atheism and on and on. And pretty soon, you know, you've, you've pretty much uh, eaten yourself from inside and, this is what I'm afraid the Democrats are doing for the 2020 election. They're just, you know, destroying themselves from within. 
Uh, I saw this yesterday when uh, that LGBTQ group uh, defenestrated uh, Martina Navratilova, you know, who was like one of the earliest champions of not just women's rights, but, you know, gay rights and, and right. LGBTQ rights. And, you know, why? Because she said that a man who identifies as a woman and then goes to compete, say, in her sport, tennis, has an unfair advantage because they're bigger, muscles are stronger. Bone density, yes. Bone density, the whole thing. And and she says, I would not want to face a man who just says, I identify as a woman, and then beats the crap out of her, you know, either figuratively in tennis or in, in MMA fighting and boxing. I mean, somebody could be killed. Yeah, uh, there's, is- for, exa- for an example, there is Fallon Fox, who is an MMA fighter, who was born a man. And now went through the process of becoming a woman, I guess you could say, and competes with the woman. Yep. There was a cyclist who, uh, who won a age division championship, uh, a few months ago. And you see her, uh, a man identifying as a woman and you see her on the podium with the other two women. It's like, holy moly. I mean, she's like six two and this massive, huge body and massive legs and you know the two petite girls standing next to her it's like yeah that was fair that yeah i i don't exactly know how that is fair to be competing against someone that you are just physically stronger than it's not fair and naturally but the point is that you can't even say you don't think it's fair even if you're martina navratilova oh my god if she can't say that you know, then this is what I mean. We're all we're screwed. I mean, you know, there goes liberalism down the drain. I mean, you know, this open, open commentary and, and debate and disputation over ideas. You have to be able to talk about these things and and to push back and say, you know, no, I, I just don't think a, a man identifying as a woman competing in a women's division in the sport is fair. Why not? Okay, well, th- let's have the debate and talk about bone density and muscle mass and so on. No, she's the. You, you, it's not a. It's not a debate. You can't even talk about it. It's sad, really, and that's the climate that we exist in today. And, and it's not like me, a, mm-hmm. you know, a middle-aged white guy can't. Say it. <laughs> Martina Navratilova can't say it. I mean, I'm offended. <laughs> I'm offended already. <laughs> right. Yes, and it, it is. It's, it's not, really crazy. Go ahead. Worried about this, uh, you know, the climate on, on college campuses is getting ever more precarious with, um, you know, safe spaces and trigger warnings mm-hmm. and the deplatforming of speakers that students don't like. You know, every time Ben Shapiro and uh, Denise D'Souza go to speak, you know, they get booed and and marched against and 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 they try to silence them by pounding on the windows and and making you know noisemakers and. We're standing up in the middle of the uh, of the auditorium and, and and chanting so that the people can't hear what what the speaker has to say. You know, it's not just the right of the speaker to speak; it's the right of the audience to hear. They came there to hear this person speak. Now, I know both Dinesh and Ben, and we disagree on a lot of really deep, important issues. But I respect their opinions. They're they're smart, well thought out, well argued. Right. I tell I assign my students if you want to do a your project on the abortion issue, you know, you got to watch Ben Shapiro and line up his nine arguments why the pro-choice position is immoral and the pro-life position is moral. Now, I'm pro-life, barely, but I am pro-life. I think I can counter his arguments, but if you can't, then how strong is your position really? And you know, as, as, as John Stuart Mill said, he who knows only his own position doesn't even know that. 
And, uh, you know, so you got to know what the other side says. And, and it's not like, you know, a professional agitator like Milo Yiannopoulos. I kind of <laughs> see why campuses may not want to invite him. They don't have to. What, what happened to him, by the way? He, he seemed to have, um, disappeared all of a sudden. Yeah, he's kind of doing his own thing. He has his own company now. He published his own book. He has his own whatever product line and merchandise. And, and I, I see him pop up periodically, although, you know, he's been shut out of most social media. So I don't, he doesn't come onto my radar very often. Mm. So I don't know. I, you know, he's every time he tries to make an appearance, he gets shut down. Now let's make a distinction here. It's not, it's not that I think every university should invite Milo Yiannopoulos to speak. I, right, I right. I wouldn't invite him to like a skeptics event to give him a, a, a platform equal to that of some, you know, say Alan Dershowitz from Harvard or something like that. Uh, but that doesn't mean um, if somebody invites him that he should be disinvited. If you invite somebody, stand by your word, honor your contract and your obligations and don't be shut down. Don't 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 wimp out and cave in and That's apologize true. to the students. Very true, very true. But this is his I guess you could say his gimmick. Well, yes. And this is the worst thing. I mean, he wants them, he wants them to do what exactly they do. <laughs> well, of course he is trolling. And baiting He's them. The last right. thing Milo Yiannopoulos wants is an empty room where nobody comes. He wants riots and 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 protesters and people screaming. He eats it up. So you know that's doubly stupid to do that. Probably not the wisest way to carry about because eventually someone will get upset with you and uh, pull the carpet underneath your feet. There. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You don't want Great. that. And and Michael, as you know. Or, well, you may or may not know this, but I, I see all of this from the psychological angle where I am wildly fascinated by human behavior and what other individuals choose to be passionate about and what they choose to let them uh, get so upset over. Triggered, in other words. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a whole interesting psychology going on here unraveling. In fact, today with the um, Jesse Smollett story. Jesse Smollett, where he, yeah. Yeah, we're, uh, you know, why would somebody fake or hoax Ooh, yes. attack? Well, it's because our culture values victimhood and elevates mm-hmm. it to a high status where you get a lot of attention and love and affection and support, particularly media attention, which apparently he wanted, um, you know, just from, from being a victim. And, you know, he's not the first. I mean, there's a, a litany of these, um, hoaxed claims going back. Well, just, just in the last year and a half since Trump was elected, but, but, but even further back, I mean, there's, there was that case that Oprah had on, uh, James Fry, who wrote that book, A Million Little Pieces, allegedly a memoir about his, well, essentially kind of a victimhood status of being a drug addict. Turns out he made it all up. Nothing happened. <laughs> nothing like that happened to him. And she reamed him. She had, she invited him back on the couch, the Oprah couch. And he's thinking, oh boy, I'm going to get a lot of love even though he'd already been exposed, and she just reamed him. And, uh, so I, you know, uh, some of my friends think Jesse's going to go on Ellen's couch and and weep and cry and uh. say, oh, yeah, I hoaxed it, but, you know, I, I couldn't help myself because it's so hard being black and gay in the age of Trump and, and you know, hope for sympathy there. I don't think that's going to happen. This case is too big, and the Chicago Police Department is pretty pissed off about this. You know, this is, you know, Chicago is now one of the most dangerous cities, the highest homicide rates, you know, in the United States and, and a, a quite a distinct reversal from the overall trend of the decline of violence and homicide. 
The police need every detective working on real cases, and they just wasted, you know, two weeks, 25 detectives working on the Jesse Smollett case, and, you know, just a complete waste of time. It really, That's no yes, good. It really was, and I, I did want to get your opinion on that and the whole media fiasco over uh, Jesse Smollett, or as some will pronounce his last name, Jesse Smollett, uh, apparently conducting this uh, false flag operation, hiring two fellow actors people that he knows to choreograph basically an attack. That was some pro wrestling type behavior there, Michael. <laughs> yeah, it really right. was. Yeah. So it's, it's, there's additional lessons here. When you hire somebody to hoax something like this, don't write a check out of your checkbook. <laughs> Seriously. The, the media, of course, uh, really ate it up playing the victim card and getting sympathy. And that's what the media was really trying to get over on the general public. It's harder and harder to pull things off like this because of all the cameras around everywhere and, uh, you know, er everything is digitized. You can track, uh, you know, credit card purchases and, and, uh, bank transfers and things like this. You know, it would, it's hard to pull off something like that now. And, and also, uh, how much do you need to pay somebody for them to keep their mouth shut when they're called in and shown the badge and a gun and said, if you lie, you're going to jail for perjury now. Or what deported. do you know about this cr this crime? You know, and of course, the average person is going to, oh, I did it. He told me to do it. He paid me, and so you know, you have to pay somebody a lot of money to 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 be willing to go to jail for you. And he apparently was willing to to send these guys down the road just for that attention. And they were Nigerian men. I I think the possibility of being deported was also on the table. Uh, totally. And then there, I heard a story just like an hour ago that there the, he already has a police record where he got a DUI. A few years ago, and he gave them initially his brother's name and ID. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, I mean, so he's willing to send his brother down the river. Incredible, That's really. But what do you expect from actors? You know, being phony—that that's not a surprise. Well, well, yeah, he's an actor, so yes, he can put up a good act. He really ruined his career there, Michael, in my opinion. Even at this point, Louis C.K. has a better chance of getting a Netflix special than Jesse Smollett has to headlighting a sitcom. Yeah, I would be surprised if Empire uh, keeps him on their their employment <laughs> records. I think, I think uh, they might even get rid of him. Yeah, he, he's probably finished. You know, these th this story was bigger than almost any of the other hoax stories from the last two years. It goes back to maybe that uh, to, uh, what was her name, Tawana. This was back in the nineties. Um, the 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 black woman who said she was raped and ah uh, yeah so forth. The Tawana Brawley. Um, and, uh, you know, that was, the whole thing was fake. Just, just like the, uh, the Duke lacrosse story was fake, you know, and the whole Rolling Stone coverage, you know, just, th this is the problem, you know, it's like, uh, it's the confirmation bias, it's motivated reasoning, you know, once you have a worldview, we live in a racist America, everybody's a bigot and so on, and, and you start looking for it everywhere. It's harder, it's getting harder to find because, in fact, we're becoming ever less racist and bigoted than compared over the centuries. Uh, things are getting much better, so it's harder to find. So when somebody fakes it and it fits the narrative, you know, you're more likely to accept it uncritically until it starts unraveling. Now, of course, all those True. commentators, are, they've gone silent. <laughs> it's funny how that happens. Or they say something like, uh, well, let, let's not, uh, let's not pass judgment until all the facts are in. Yeah, well, you should have said that in the first place. Right. And I also got to say those MAGA hats, whoever came up with that idea and put it on the hat, I have to say they must be raking in lots and lots of money on those hats. <laughs> well, now especially, yeah. 
Yeah, I see uh, Trump tweeted out at him because initially he gave support. He said this is a terrible thing that happened to him, and and, uh, and and then of course he naturally is, you know, firing back as he's wont to do. I do I do wish Trump would stay off of uh, social media, but well, I think that's what also helped him get over that sort of that's right, yeah, mm-hmm, that sort of style that he has there. It's a very pro wrestling esque. Totally. But he's friends with Vince McMahon, so I mean, you gotta expect that. And he's, he's been there a couple times. I feel like we're, we're living in a reality TV series oh, now. Oh, I, I said that back in 2016. I said uh, the show was about to begin, and my god, I, was I ever right? <laughs> yeah. It's scary. But, but those yeah. hats, Michael, they have totally taken a life of its own. They symbolize a magnitude of concepts for the human psyche. Incredible. Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's a little bit like uh, I mean, every president has their slogan. So you know, the famous Obama poster, yeah, chain, so that was pretty powerful too, right? Uh, you know, all the way back to you know, I like Ike buttons and so on. I mean, that's all the way uh, with LBJ and so on. That that's pretty normal. Uh, the hat, I guess, gets a little more uh, coverage because it's visible. <laughs> it's red. It's the white letters. It's on somebody's head. You know, it's 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 easier to read than a button that goes on your lapel, say, or a poster that's hanging up far away. So, yeah. Oh, yes. And, of course, we saw the media frenzy over the Covington teenager wearing the hat as well. Yeah, he's suing uh, the Washington Post now. <laughs> $250. million. Good you know, Lord. That's, that's pocket change for Jeff Bezos. but It is, but I'm, that's a big payday. I'm sympathetic to him now, what happened and how bad uh, he was treated. But I don't know about lawsuits. I mean, that again, you know, when you, you, you bring the government in, the law, and that's pretty heavy-duty stuff, you know, it, He's going to have to prove damages. I mean, it's one thing to say you lied about me, yes, but to to, to actually collect money, you have to prove that you were harmed. Now, how's he going to do that as a high schooler? I mean, you know, like I lost my hundred thousand dollar a year job. No, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so he's going to have a hard time with that. But you know, it's uh, if nothing else, uh, maybe it sends a message to the media right. to you know, not jump on those stories too quickly. I mean, if there's if there's a 30 second video clip, you might at least ask, is there more video? Yeah. Before before you write the story, or you or you might say, based on this 30 second clip, it looks like X, but we're withholding judgment until we see the whole video. Something like that. Correct. That would have been the strong and rational thing to do for for this for this whole incident, really. And uh, once I realized the other group that that. Indian man came from the black Hebrew Israelite group. Right, I, I love those guys, to be honest with you. I, I am completely entertained and amused. I'm not making fun of them, but just how they go about and scream their opinions at the top of their lungs out in different street corners in the New York area. Uh, well, different places around America, but uh, the most videos that you see online, if you look them up on YouTube, it's all New York stuff, really, and Really, really entertaining. I didn't really follow them. I never heard of them before all this mm-hmm. happened, and they seem a pretty problematic group. Not big not, time. Not, not anything I would endorse. <laughs> it's for a sure. very militant group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, uh, pretty problematic. But you know, whatever. I mean, that—that's the problem. Is that you know we didn't see any of that until later. Yeah, much later. Part of the problem with social media is mm-hmm. that you know if you feel like I need to be on social media most of the day and commenting. And if a couple of days go by without you commenting at all, you start to feel like, well, I got to get it back in there because everybody's talking about X. 
Um, and the, so the pressure is to say something. I mean, I feel this because I'm, I'm, I'm on social media a fair amount, but every once in a while I'll just go off for a couple of days. I won't look. I won't write anything. And it's actually kind of liberating. Like, you know what? I missed that. And that's what happened with the Covington thing. I was in my one of my periodic social media fasts, and I missed the first initial wave. So when it, when it started to break, I thought, oh, thank God, because I might have gotten pissed when I saw that picture <laughs> of the smirking kid. Uh, so it's not like I was like, you know, had superpowers to overcome the temptation to moralize. Everybody wants to moralize, but that's human nature. But uh, so thank God I was off social media. I think it's good, you know, Sharon uh, uh, Le- um, Ch- Lanier, you know, he has that book, you know, why we should get off social media permanently. I don't, I wouldn't go that far. I think it's, Social media is a useful tool, but, you know, it's good to take some time off just to get some perspective on issues. I agree completely with that. Sometimes it's best not to get so personally involved. I mean, it's good to read the news and be up to date. But once you let it start affecting your outside life and, you know, kind of becoming, uh, you start to, because some people I know that are completely engulfed in the political spectrum they can't even enjoy a movie or a, a, anything on TV or before they start to politicize everything. Yeah, I'm fortunate. I'm a little older. I'm 64. So uh, to get into social media and all that, I kind of had to force myself. I wasn't eager to do it. I felt like I needed to do it to stay relevant. Well, you're a like, prominent figure, Michael. Well, I'm on Kathy Griffin's D list, I think, <laughs> as prominent figures go. Well. But, uh, but I kind of felt like I got to do it, but it's not like, it's not in my blood. I don't feel like I got to do this every day or else I'm going to get anxious, you know. Sure. Uh, I, I have no problems taking half a day off or a day off or a couple of days off social media. Uh, and it actually feels good doing that. And, you know, that, that, that's not, not bad advice for everybody, I think. Oh, yeah. You know, there's a big, there's a big debate now. Um, with the Jonathan Haidt and Gene Twenge on one side saying too much social media leads to this, you know, coddling of the American mind or, or the I Jenners, as Gene calls them, kids having more um, social, um, mental issues, anxiety, depression, suicide, um, ideation, and so on, which they attribute to, to, to too much screen time, too much social media. Well, there's a new study. This is how science works. A new study published, two studies published last week, finding no relationship between screen time and mental issues at all, uh, zero. So, you know, that kind of – that's sort of how it goes in science. You you, you wish one experiment would uh, – or, or one study would settle it, but it rarely is the case that you get settled science. So I, I, even these recommendations like keep your kid off the screen no more than two hours a day. You know, no, that's probably not the problem. It's not just screen time. There's other issues. They could probably be on six hours a day as long as they, they're doing other things as well. You know, it, 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 it has to be balanced. You're, you're right on that. And there's different articles online that all allegedly say things like how social media increases depression and loneliness for, for certain, uh, I guess you could say teenagers or adults. Well, right. Um, it, well, the, the, the cohort that they're talking about are like 13 to 19 year olds that, that is, they're in high Very school young, and, yeah. and just entering college that they seem to be having these problems. There is a spike. Okay. The data is there that there's a spike starting around 2013, which is when iGenner started college. These are kids born in 1995 or after, uh, a spike in, uh, self-reported 
anxiety and depression and suicide ideation. Now, when I say spike, I mean from like 3% to 6% for boys. So, again, it's not like it's half of all boys are, you know, thinking about killing themselves. No. And for girls, it was, I, I think, 4% to 15%. So it was a, you know, more than a tripling. It might have been 5, 5% to 15%, but basically a, a, a threefold increase. But, uh, but again, the numbers are still pretty small. I mean, I teach a class of, you know, 25 students in a seminar. You know, most of them are perfectly normal, perfectly happy. They're not raging, screaming, moralizing, or depressed, suicide-type kids. You know, they're just normal kids. So when we talk about an increase, we, we mean a you – know, it, it, was, it was a pretty small number to begin with, which kind of reminds me of another statistical mistake people make in reading studies and the way the media reports it. They'll say something like, well, there was a you know a 100% increase in the rates of prostate cancer, for example or just some weird disease or something like that, you go, oh, my God, that's incredible. I better get checked up. Well, you look at the study, and it's like, you know, two out of 100,000 people get this particular cancer, and now it's four out of 100,000. You go, four out of 100,000? So the chances of me getting this are pretty much nil. I'm not going to rush to the doctor. <laughs> yeah. So you gotta, you got to look at the original study to see what they mean. When they just use a percentage, you know, this huge increase, but the original number was tiny. Yeah, I agree. I still agree with, um, certain studies, I definitely think it could become problematic for some young minds out there who are easily influenced. Uh, for instance, we could look at the mainstream media and those who watch and consume it daily. That's where the cognitive biasness comes in or the cognitive dissonance comes into play for, for many of these individuals that we talk to on a daily basis, Michael, say at, at a Starbucks. Yeah. Yeah. So we all travel in, in our own little bubbles. That's okay. That's perfectly, perfectly normal. We're tribal that way. Part of our nature. It's okay. You know, I, I like hanging with my cycling buddies or my sure. science friends or my skeptic atheist friends or whatever and, and, uh, go out for drinks and talk and complain about, you know, those other people over there that are idiots because <laughs> they don't believe what we believe. You know, everybody does that. We all do that. Yeah. Yeah. We all do that. So the part of the problem that, you know, we've, it's been apparent since the 2016 election is, you know, the manipulation of, by, of social media by outside agents. And now there's some research on showing how this works. You know, you can, you know, Google Trump or Google Hillary and, you know, and you get a Google page of 10 hits, 10 pages. And so in these faux experiments, they'll have like five and five positive, negative or six and four or seven and three, say, uh, negative, positive ratio or whatever. People can't tell. I mean, the, the, the subject is kind of scanning and reading and looking, has no idea what the ratio is. But it does tilt their then later self-reported support for or criticisms of that candidate. And it directly correlates to the number, that percentage, that ratio of positive to negative pages on that one Google hit page. So, uh, you know, this is disturbing. Sometimes I, you know, I, I champion, you know, uh, free will and, and autonomy and rationality and reason and science and all that. But sometimes I feel like we're just rats in a Skinner box pressing bars and we have no idea that there's somebody out there, you know, manipulating the reinforcement ratio, uh, of, you know, the number of, uh, of reinforcements you get for hitting the left bar instead of the right bar. I mean, that's kind of what it feels like. It, that's and, very uh, true. And uh, but but maybe perhaps awareness of that, like you know, I'm just going to be cautious and know that you know somebody out there is trying to manipulate this stuff. This you said you said the key word awareness. That's what we see here in America: the lack of self-awareness and just awareness in general. 
Yeah, so this uh, professor that did this research, I think it was at Stanford, I forget his name now, uh, was talking about, like, say, for example, you want to tilt the election in favor of Trump. Now, you can't go to African-American communities online and, and try to uh, make Trump appealing to them. They're Credit probably not going to vote yes. for Trump no matter what. But you can convince them that a vote for Hillary is not going to help you. Is not going to she she's not going to help the African American community so don't even bother to vote that's a vote for Trump <laughs> you know and I hadn't really thought of it like that but that that's right you can just tilt it just ever so slightly in that one direction even though somebody may say I have no interest in voting for Trump by not voting for Hillary you did vote for Trump correct and we've seen this go on for many many years different governments trying to influence different elections uh, we've done that too. Oh, for sure. Yeah, you know, when you look at um, some of our foreign policies through the 70s and 80s and, and how we tried to manipulate elections in South American countries, you know, the, we like this dictator more than that dictator because the one dictator we can control, we can't control the That's other dictator. That's how it's gone on forever and selling yep. arms and selling drugs. That's kind of how everything started and still continues. Yeah, so Christopher Hitchens wrote that uh, book about Henry Kissinger as a war criminal. It's like, what are you talking about? I, I always thought Kissinger was great, but no, you know, he was involved in all these shenanigans in South American countries that, you know, that it's a kind of a conspiracy in a way that um, the Pentagon Papers revealed. That's like, a real conspiracy, you know, yeah. Yeah, and now the uh, WikiLeaks in a way, I mean, uh, you know, we didn't. No one was talking about the NSA and what they were doing and, and you know, tapping um, Americans' phones and, and not just metadata, but actual conversations and, and emails and so on. And it's like, what? I thought we lived in a democracy, a liberal democracy where, you know, we have certain uh, constitutionally protected rights. Maybe not. Maybe not. That's very true. You could just look back at the whole FBI COINTELPRO and that gets into some very dirty stuff as well. And going back to social media and different platforms of that nature, I'm surprised in today's climate that you still have any platform, myself included. I know that uh, Facebook and YouTube aren't very kind about my program. And the days of freedom of speech and freedom of thought are sort of um, disappearing uh, every day, you know, Michael. There's a lot of us pushing back. I think this too shall pass. Um, I think this is you know, the kind of pendulum swinging back and forth. It's sort of understandable why the, you know, the far left went too far to the left, just like the far right went too far to the right in the 80s and 90s and, and they got pushed back in the 2000s. Okay, fine. That, that, you know, that, that's how it's supposed to work as long as those opportunities are still in place, uh, for us to push back. And, that, and that's why, uh, the protection of free speech is the most fundamental of all rights. Free speech is the most important. Uh, right. We have because we only have our thoughts that, you know, we just you know, everything is filtered through our brains and you have thoughts, but you have to communicate the thoughts, that speech, however loosely you want to define it. And if you can't speak your thoughts, then how do we know what other people are thinking? So everything else follows from that. So we got to protect that. Definitely. The future where this current game of PC culture takes us has me no doubt perturbed, doctor. <laughs> yeah, well, so just, so vigilance, that's it. We gotta stay vigilant. Definitely, I, I agree wholeheartedly on that. And by the way, Michael, we didn't talk about this last time, but you also have a podcast of your own. Yeah, the Science Salon Love podcast. It. 
if you go to skeptic.com, you can see the Science Salon podcast or just Google Science Salon. Yeah, I'm up to 54 different uh, people I've talked to. I'm kind of specializing in science authors now. This is an mm-hmm. extension of our Caltech Science Lecture Series. We started in 1992, and then I migrated that to from lectures to conversations that I was holding in a small venue where it would be just like 50, 60 people present. But even that was cumbersome to do, you know, fly uh, somebody in from the East Coast or wherever they are and uh, and then put them up in a hotel and order the books and get the ticket sales and all that stuff that with with a podcast with a you know Skype I can in a studio and I can do it from anywhere my guests can be anywhere exactly. uh, at any time and uh, it's a great uh technology we have and I mainly did this because I like consuming podcasts I I enjoy uh you know Joe Rogan, Dave Rubin, your podcast, Sam Harris's podcast, you know Science the whole Science Friday NPR podcast they have and you know it's a great way to consume content well I live in southern california so you we do a lot of driving absolutely yes <laughs> and, and when you're doing chores or uh you know I'm out cycling or hiking with my dog you know I'm listening to something books on tape a teaching company course a podcast and then last year I started, maybe two years ago now, started doing podcasts as a guest instead of mainstream media, you know, and it's so much better. Like here we're, we're, we're going on almost an hour now. Um, and if I was on CNN, you know, I'd get my six minutes, uh, or Bill Maher or any, you know, Larry King, Larry King, you'd get an hour, but it's not even an hour because there's, you know, 22 minutes of commercials and oh, he has yes. four, four other guests all screaming at you. You know, it's hard to have a conversation, uh, and you know, I I miss that. Yes, it, it it really is hard to get uh, certain, I guess, intellectual conversations going with with uh, certain people. But we don't always seek for that sort of enjoyment in our lives. Sometimes we we like the chaos as well, and I'm sure you do too, Michael. Talking to just people that aren't exactly completely aware. Sometimes the 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 people that are completely unaware and lack, I guess you could say, um, well, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. I'll, I'll be polite today. Um, <laughs> I guess you could say you do enjoy casual conversation with, with normal folks out there as well. Oh, I do. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I always learn something new when talking to people. So, for example, this weekend uh, on Saturday, I'm flying to um, – North Carolina for a debate I'm doing on the problem of evil with a theologian at the Southern Evangelical Seminary. Oh my goodness, amazing. Everyone in the room is going to be not just religious, (laughs) not just a theist, but an evangelical Christian. Oh my. Who are pretty enthusiastic about being the one true religion, right? So now their problem they have to deal with is, you know, they believe that God is, you know, all good, all powerful, and all knowing. Omniscient, omnipotent, and uh, omnibenevolent, and perfect, and of course existing. So, uh, are, are you, you gonna, that? Ma- Michael? Yeah. Michael, I hate to cut you off, but are you gonna be wearing all white for for the evening? <laughs> I'm gonna be wearing all black. My oh schedule. no, you should wear all white just to mess with them. <laughs> yeah, that would mess with them. That'd be a lot of fun. You should but do I, that. <laughs> you know, why am I doing this? Well, of course they hire me, pay me to do it. Okay, fine. But, uh, but I actually enjoy the process of engaging with people. And this is not a debate, actually. It's an in conversation. So I'm actually going to get to push this guy pretty hard on his twisted logic of how you mm. get 
you know, from how do you square that circle? You know, that, and I'm not talking about like homicides because they'll say, oh, well, God gave people free will and they make bad choices and they'll pay for that in hell, something like that. No. What about like childhood leukemia or, you know, children that are killed in a tsunami? I mean, God could do something about that. Why doesn't he? You know, and what's the moral lesson that this three-year-old is supposed to learn from this or his grieving parents who whose lives are ruined forever because they've lost their uh, beloved children? Well, Michael, that's because God has a plan for them. Well, my son. This- I know this is a bullshit thing, you know. <laughs> well, this is they actually that is an argument. You know, it that, really is. That's scary. Or it is, but but basically, God works in mysterious ways. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. If I lost my kid uh, to one of these tragedies, and a Christian said, you know, well, it's okay because God works in mysterious ways, I'd say, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great a uh, great response, in my opinion. It's the only response. Uh, I mean, you know, th- come on, seriously. You know, can, th- are they actually going to argue that there was some higher moral lesson to be? Yeah. Oh, so this woman gets raped. Oh, so here's an actual story. Um, you know, in um, uh, in his book, The Language of God. Um, which Francis, which, oh, which theologian are we speaking of again? Okay, this is Francis Collins. He's the head of the National uh, Institutes of Health. He's big. He was the Human Genome Project director. Oh, I know him. Yeah. Yeah, he's huge, and he's an evangelical Christian. Okay, so I forget which book. It might have been The Language of God or the one after that, uh, where he talks about uh, the problem of evil. And his daughter was raped as a I think, college student or something. It's amazing he, he had the courage to bring this up. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently with her permission. But Yikes. You know, he, kinda, he sort of made this argument that she became a stronger person for it. Hmm. Wait, are you seriously arguing that you know rape is uh, – uh, this is good. It, it builds character. You know, of course, wow. he's not going to argue that, but that's kind of what's implied. Like, oh, this is okay. No, it's not okay. It's never okay. It's not acceptable. That's true. <clears throat> so, anyway, so that's so I'm looking forward to that on uh, Saturday. <laughs> well, that's going to be quite an evening. Yeah. So, and it's live streamed. If any, if if this airs before this Saturday, uh, then um, they can watch just ses Southern Evangelical Seminary dot com or something like that. <laughs> Very, very good. Yeah, definitely check that out, ladies and gentlemen. Get that streaming going. I would definitely go to that if I was in the area. Ten bucks. Ten bucks, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. And I'm going to hammer these guys. I mean, this is a great – because I was once an evangelical. It's the other advantage I had. You were also religious at one point. Yeah, that's right. I went to Pepperdine University. It's an evangelical Christian uh, Christian school. And, yeah. what, and what happened, Michael? When, when did you turn your back on God? Uh, Well, graduate school. <laughs> it was science that did it. Ah, the bloody science, yes. You know, was it that science thing? Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Well, check this out. This is always cruel. Uh, This uh, little uh, tidbit here. When I was in high school, I had a biology teacher who was a Jehovah's Witness, and I don't know how that happened. I really don't. The JWs, they do evangelize. They come to my door periodically. Uh, They're not uh, quite as interesting as the Mormon boys when they come around. Oh, those Mormons, yeah. Uh, But but they do have a program like that where they walk around. Now, when I became a born-again Christian in 1971, I was a senior in high school. I remember my friend Frank was always telling me I I should accept Jesus as my Savior and so on. So I did. And then with another friend of mine. So then I came back Monday morning, the next day, uh, you know, whatever it was, on a Monday morning, and I say, Frank, you know, I did it. I, I accepted Jesus. Well, which church did you go to? I said, yeah, it was the Presbyterian Church there in Glendale. Oh, no, that's the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> like, 
what? Wait a minute. What do you mean it's the wrong one? Oh, no, it's the Jehovah Witnesses. I'm like, well, sorry. <laughs> That's the one I went to. So then he tried to talk me into going to the, you know, the one true religion, the Jehovah Witnesses. It's like, already I knew, okay, there's something off here. You know, come on. Yes. And by the way, I'm sure during this whole debate, you will be asked how you can have morality without God. I'm pretty sure they're okay. going to they're gonna yeah. ask you that eventually. Yeah, of course, that's coming, and that's all right. I have, you know, I have a good, I wrote a whole book about that. Oh, they're going to love to throw that one at you. I wrote a couple of books about that. I wrote uh, The Science of Good and Evil, and, in which I uh, first articulated a sort of an evolutionary argument for um, the foundations of the moral sentiments, that is, these moral emotions, a sense of right and wrong and guilt and shame and, and, and so forth. Uh, and then in the moral arc, I show how the application of science and reason bends the moral arc toward more justice, and that it's not religion, but but science and reason, since the enlightenment that has driven the moral progress. So I'll have plenty of ammo for them. Oh, my. Yeah, speaking of uh, individuals who lack self-awareness, you said reason yeah, that's something that they have no grasp of, Michael. Well, they, they think they do. They have logical arguments. I mean, theologians have these convoluted, twisted uh It's twisted, art, yeah. Art argument. Um, well, I, I, when I say twisted, I mean like a pretzel. I mean, I'm not a philosopher, so you know, my eyes start to glaze over when they, you know, they get down to, you know, 0.14a. You know, and, and it's, let's go back to the premise that you started with, because that's where you went wrong. You know, and the premise is there has, there is a God, there has to be a God, I already believe in God, that's it, that's my premise, now how can I get there? And then, you know, two hours later, they're still, you know, trying to talk you into it through this, these syllogisms, and, you know, to me, they just don't work, it's, it's so much blah, 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 and it, it just doesn't hold, but, you know, they'll make their case. And Word soup, case. indeed. And, Michael, you should bring on Ken Ham as a guest one day on your show. Oh, boy, well, that would be interesting, I might do that. I Actually, think you should. That would be that would be in the category of people I wouldn't normally talk to uh, to see if I bring them on. Yeah, That'd be I, fun. I, I might do that. That's a good idea. You've talked me into it. I, well, I mean, I, I have been listening to your show for quite some time. Definitely feel like a, a Ken Ham would just really just put you over again. All right, I'll do it. I'll Perfect. contact him. <laughs> Perfect. Although you know, Bill, Bill had his Bill and I had his thing with Ken. Ken. They did that live debate, which was pretty interesting. We actually prepped Bill uh, at my house. Actually. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah, brought over um, uh, Don Prothero, a professional geologist who has debated creationists, and he laid out for Bill, you know, here's the 20 reasons why we know evolution happened. And Bill pretty much followed that formula, I and mean, I thought it was, I thought he did a good job. I know he was criticized in the scientific community for even debating him, and you know, it's a, it's a debatable subject whether you should debate these people. I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's what I do. It's what Bill does. Um, the, the, the thing is that, you know, of course we're not going to convert people who already believe that position. No, but that's not who we're after. We're after the undecided voters, the independent voters, so to speak, people that haven't made up their mind. Yeah. And going back to that, going back to social media and when I said you'd be on the program, are you familiar with a, uh, individual by the name of John E.L. Tenney? Nope. Never heard of him. Uh, okay. Well, he took, he was pretty quick on Twitter once I announced you'd be on. Um, yeah. I invited him to call in, but I don't think he wants to chat uh, with okay. us in a serious manner. Uh, he's, from what I recall, one of my listeners wanted me to interview him, and I thought, sure, why not? And apparently he's one of these um, lecturers who go around uh, talking about their personal experience with, I guess you could say, the afterlife. He had this uh, experience, yeah. this near-death experience, and he claims he 
was, I guess, given a choice whether to live or to go to the other side. I'm, I'm not quite sure how his story goes, but um, I thought you might be familiar with him since he was so quick uh, no, to respond I've never, there. I never heard of him. I mean, there's there's a thousand of those near-death experience type stories it's out there. It's pretty common. Yeah, his experiences are extremely common from what I um, gathered. Yeah, totally. So I don't know what, you know, it, most of, most of it has to do with, um, um, uh, you, you just personal, ex- the power of personal experiences. That is, you know, it's really hard to convince somebody that's experienced something that they didn't experience what they think they experienced. Uh, which is why I always point to people that have similar experiences who have recognized that they're not otherworldly or supernatural, you know, like, um, Oliver Sacks' books are all about these kinds of weird things that people experience that, uh, in fact, we know exactly what the, what it is, what's causing the, you know, the hallucination or whatever. It's this brain chemistry, a tumor, a stroke, you know, whatever, just these weird disorders people have. And, uh, you know, from there, I try to convince them that at least plant a seed of a reasonable doubt. You know, do, do you think it's possible that, uh, you might have had one of these brain experiences, and that's what uh, accounts for your your personal experience. Right. So well, you, yes, and you definitely have the proverbial target on your back in terms of being that guy to convince for validation to X, Y, and Z claim. Yep. Well, that's what I do, so it's okay. <laughs> it's, it's it's perfectly fine. That's what you've been doing for such a long time, and I would imagine you get plenty of emails of individuals just like him that want to give you their their two cents yes and that's good i mean i like to hear from people it's okay sure. i mean I, I i respond to emails if people want to write me their stories try to keep them short <laughs> uh you know but the, the problem with personal testimonies is that they are by definition non-falsifiable i mean i wasn't there i don't know who you are i don't know what was going on in your life at the time this experience happened and you know, maybe you had a bad pork chop. Maybe you had magic mushrooms. Maybe you were, uh, you know, had, you were hung over. You know, maybe you were bereaved, uh, severe depression because of a loss. I, you know, I don't know. Those are all the kinds of things that happen to people. Uh, you know, that, uh, in part account for these experiences. And so we have to look at the whole thing. Certainly. And I've talked to a few people who have mentioned seeing, uh, people in the clouds and in rocks. And of course, things like that can be logically explained. And in this case, that would be due to anthropomorphism. Yeah. I call it patternicity. It's tendency to find meaningful patterns in both meaningful and meaningless noise. Um, and then we infuse it with agency. So I call that agenticity, the tendency to infuse patterns with, with intentional agents. We all do it. It's hard to overcome it. Um, but it explains a lot in terms of beliefs in ghosts and gods and aliens and angels and conspiracies and, and so forth. Right. And I believe someone in the chat room wanted me to ask you about your thoughts and opinions on UFOs. Oh, right. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. UFOs. So that's, well, there's two questions here, really. Are aliens out there somewhere in the cosmos, and have they come here? Those are two different questions. Now, most scientists will say, well, we don't know either way uh, for both those questions, uh, but very likely there's intelligent life somewhere in the cosmos just by the sheer number of possibilities. No matter how low the probability is because of all the factors that have to come together, the fact that there's trillions and trillions of planets in every galaxy it now appears um, it appears every star has planets and, and maybe a dozen or so. 
And so by, by chance, with that huge number to start with, no matter how low the probabilities for any one of the factors that has to come together to get life and intelligence, uh, it's going to happen. So they're probably out there somewhere. I think it's a big cosmos, a lot of empty space. I think that's why we haven't made contact yet. Uh, but the, uh, but, but the other question, have they come here? Right. The, uh, the evidence for that is very thin. Very thin. And, and Michael, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I do have a call and I think it's for you. Okay. Yeah, All let's, right. let's bring in, ca- caller, are you alive? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This is, uh, Kaiser. Kaiser. Calling in to say, hey, What's I love it on? when you and Michael, when Michael and Michael, the Eminem show, <laughs> I love this show. And, uh, you, you are two of my favorite, uh, commenters. Amazing. Just calling in. Yep. Yep. Just calling in. I think, uh, Michael, I agree on a lot of the stuff he says. Uh, a lot of his intel he gets. Uh, well, you know what I do for a living, Mike. Uh, Not Michael Shermer. I'm talking about you, Michael. Yes. You know what I do for a living. And, uh, there's a lot that you do see. And some of it's unreal. In my in my trade, just to be clear with him, why don't you tell him, Michael, so that I don't have to. I don't want to toot my own horn, brother. Oh well, this was a uh, a DOD uh, member here. Oh. Yes. Yeah. A very prestigious one at that. And what what did you uh, what subjects were you investigating? Oh, it wasn't what I was investigating. It was what was I was involved in? I've worked for DOD since I was seventeen. First started out in the Army as a military policeman, then in the Marine Corps as a military policeman, 5811. 95 Bravo in the Army when there was still a Berlin Wall, ADAC Alaska, which actually had Classic Wizard, which was the forerunner to HARP. Right. I guarded that. And then uh, bounced into uh, um, Federal Service after that with my first agency that I never named. After I was a union iron worker putting myself through college and, uh, 2001 happened and October 26th, I was on the ground in Afghanistan, left there in the beginning of 2003, went to work for DLA Defense Logistics Agency as an investigator and, uh, then went on to contract in 05 and for a brief stint, I worked for Homeland with Immigration and Customs Enforcement in wow, Detroit, Philadelphia. Yeah, he's done yeah. a lot. So what's the, uh, yeah. what are some of the most unusual things you had happened to you or seen? Well, one of them is totally unbelievable and I don't talk about it anymore because a brother of mine blew his brains out after I did. I did actually out something that was pretty major. Uh, so I will not talk about it again. Michael knows this. Um, he knows the story. He can tell you offline. Uh, but uh, like, you know, you, you witness some things like I, I saw a ghost one time in a warehouse um, that was real. I mean, that was a real deal thing. I've uh, been there for the unearthing of mass graves in Iraq from the Shias. I worked in uh, Al-Qut province, and Camp Delta was where we were based out of. I've worked around ODA, a bunch of different stuff, you know. It it just is what it is. And uh, I'm still a contractor to this day. I've worked for the Chinese, I've worked for the Afghans themselves, uh, but always in U.S. interest. And even worked here in the U.S. Michael knows about that. If he wants to talk about it, he can tell you. I, I made, I make the news. I get, just force gump myself through the world. 
That's pretty amazing, really. I was, I was in Charlottesville for the whole uh, setup and saw what happened. Right. And if you ever want to look up uh, David Duke in Charlottesville, you'll see me, and I was not bodyguarding that piece of shit. Excuse me, I didn't mean to say that on the program. That's okay. But I was bodyguarding a podcaster who was trying, David Duke was trying to make himself relevant by being close to him. And I got a visit by the FBI, the Joint Terrorism Task Force. You did? Because of it. Wow. That's pretty scary. Yeah. No, I, nah, I was a former Fed. They had a three-eighths inch file on me. Well, I mean, for and someone. Yet, they um, didn't know the pertinent. Right. But I mean, in terms of someone like myself, if I got that sort of visit, I'd be freaked out. I'm sure Michael would be freaked out too. Yeah, no, they have totally. to follow up. They couldn't. They couldn't parallel construct on me because they had facial rec up. They had voice rec. They also had the uh, Mavericks and also the um, uh, what was that called? Uh, um, it's all cell phone collection data and uh, Duke. They had that stuff up and they knew who I was. But a buddy of mine was going through a divorce. Me and my wife and my son helped fund his divorce because he was on disability. And his wife decided to call in and report me. You know, she made a big deal out of it. Like, oh, he's next to David Duke. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no. I don't give a shit about David Duke. And I just said it again. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. Mike. All good. Anyways, um, you know, you just find yourself in history. And that's honestly what should happen. What's your thoughts on that, Michael? Because honestly, listening to you, it seems like you're a fellow, not a fellow traveler as a communist, but you're a traveler right. also. You're somebody that just exists and finds himself in cool places. <laughs> well, that's right. So when I meet people like you, I, I'm, I'm very open to hearing your experiences because I know when you're working in government agencies like that, there's a lot of stuff you see that we civilians don't know about, which is what Michael and I were talking about earlier with uh, revelations like with the Pentagon Papers and the and the WikiLeaks papers that you know there's a lot of stuff going on that you know that I, I'm guessing most congressmen didn't know about and uh, so that's a kind of a conspiracy uh, that goes on and that we should be alert to and and that to that extent I I'm glad there are whistleblowers and laws to protect whistleblowers because how else would we know about those things so that that's good to know on the other hand I do recognize there has to be national secrets we can't. You know, have free speech in which we share the nuclear codes with the Russians, obviously. So there's restrictions there. Uh, but in general, I, I, I always like hearing stories from, from people like you that worked on the inside. Uh, you know, now that said, the, uh, the WikiLeaks, both Pentagon Papers and WikiLeaks, uh, showed the absence of something. There was an absence of, for example, any evidence for UFOs, what we were talking about earlier. Yes. There were, there were no right. memos about, you know, the alien bodies in Roswell or, and for that matter, 9-11 is an inside job. There was, you know, in the WikiLeaks, you know, ten, millions right. of documents, not not one, having anything to do with, you know, nine, Bush administration knowing about 9-11 ahead of time and or any of that stuff. The only two real issues I have with 9-11, and I'm, I'm Mike, Michael, um, end of days, just going to put it that way so we can not keep saying Michael. Uh, and you guys maybe don't know who I'm talking about. Um uh, I'll ask this final question and and make a statement. And two issues I had with 9-11. Well, there's three, actually. But on the 10th, one thing or two things happened. First thing, a lot of people mind dump on. And it was when you had the second death 
Secretary of Defense, get up and say, we've lost X amount. I think it was like $4 trillion, $3.7 trillion, if I remember right. And I could be faulty on that, so please fact check. And when Rumsfeld said that, that was fine. And then also there was the assassination of Amir Massoud in Afghanistan, the Lion of the Panjir. If people don't know who it is, look it up. You'll find out. Then September 11th happened. The two buildings I really don't have an issue with. What I have an issue with is two things on that day. Um, first off, Building 7. Look who collected the insurance money on it. The second thing I have an issue with is the missile. Notice I'm not saying an aircraft. The missile impacted on DFAS, Defense Finance Accounting Center's area. Okay? That are the two things I have an issue with. Everything else I can buy, but those two things I have an issue with uh, for 9-11. So notice I said 9-10 and 9-11. Notice I'm not dis disputing you, or and I'm definitely not counteracting you, Mr. Shermer. Uh, that's I'm, okay. I'm um, not counter-signaling you. Yeah, counter-signaling. Yeah, that's, that's all good. Yeah, <clears throat> I'm aware of all those arguments, and... Uh, I can't go through them all now. In fact, I have to sign off here, Michael, because I gotta uh, yeah. go down and oh, teach my class. I know we gotta we gotta wrap but, it up pretty. But, here, but in pretty short, well, uh, if you go to skeptic.com and you type in 9/11, we have a bunch of articles on there that address all these issues. You know, Building Seven and the Pentagon and was it a missile or a plane and right. so on. And, you know, we we do address that. No doubt. Well, like I said, I'm looking forward to me and uh, Mr. Deacon or. Going to be on Jaffe Riders WPRPN, World Power Radio Podcast Network, and uh, we'll go through this stuff too. But um, like I said, um, I try to out everything I can. Hopefully, Michael uh, Deacon can fill you in offline. I'm going to hang up. You gentlemen, I yeah, thanks for I, the call. I love listening more than talking. God bless. Thank be you. Well Take care. Soon. All right. Bye bye. And there he goes. And Michael, I do want to thank you for being a part of the program yet again and spending some time with us here. And of course, your latest book is Heavens on Earth, the scientific search for the afterlife, immorality, or immortality and utopia, rather. That's it. <laughs> you got I, it right. um, I actually didn't have that written down anywhere. I just went off the top of my head. So I wasn't sure if I said any of those things correctly. See, see, your memory is still working. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Uh, so, well, thanks for having me on, and thanks for taking that call. It's always, uh, I, I, do, I do always find those people interesting. Yeah, very people that have worked in government agencies. Yeah, it's I know fascinating. Yeah, it's all good. So and, thanks. of course, check out Science Salon, your podcast, the great stuff. Michael, we'll do this again in the near future, my friend. Thank you. All right, you take, take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. And there he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That was Dr. Michael Shermer. I would like to thank all of you out there in the chat room, and of course, those at Deprogrammed Radio and coming right up. And I also can't forget those at Steampunk Radio. What a lovely bunch all of you are out there. And if you enjoyed the program, please help spread the word. Tell a friend. Go to michaeldeacon.com. If you want to donate, hit that PayPal button there. And of course, if you heard this on YouTube, make sure to subscribe to the channel and leave a comment if you liked tonight's program once again i'll see you on saturday 7 p.m pacific standard time 10 p.m eastern time i'm michael deacon and with that said the world is a mysterious place and life itself is a mystery until next time good night everybody